get the recording started on here. Okay, welcome everybody. We are in Parak Gimel. Parak Gimel. I think what I'll do is just for the sake of most of you who were not here last week, let's just go back to the beginning of Parak Gimel uh, briefly. We only did a couple psukim anyway, so let's just start from the beginning. Um, again, just as by way of introduction, this parak talks about the development of one's seichel, of one's intellect. It's not necessarily dealing with midos, which is what a lot of Mishle deals with, one's character, but this parak is dealing with one's mindset, one's uh, intellect, one's way of thinking. Uh, that's going to be the theme of this parak. So let's get started. Pasuk Aleph, Beni, my son, Torah si al tishkach, do not forget my Torah, o mitzvosai yitzar libecha, and let your heart guard uh, my commandments. Uh, verse 2, I'm not going to expand on these couple of first verses because we've done them already, but I'm just going to read through them. Uh, verse 2, ki orech yamim ushnos chayim, they add length to your days and years to your life, v'shalom yasifulach, and they add peace to you as well. Okay. Chesed ve'emes aliyaz vucha. Kindness and truth will not forsake you. Kashreim al gargare secha. Bind them upon your neck. Kasvim al luach libecha. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Um, let me mention something here about kasvim al luach libecha. Bind them on the tablet of your heart. I did not mention this last week. One of the... Um, Truly beautiful ideas that I that I heard. I heard this from Rabbi Sachs, by Jonathan Sachs. I believe the Chassam Sofer says it. I believe. I might be mistaken, but I believe Chassam Sofer says it. Um, the Gemara is a, is a pretty well-known piece of Gemara. The Gemara says, Ein l'cha ben chorin elamisha osik b'torah. The true free person is the one who toils in Torah. Freedom is synonymous with Torah. Says the Gemara, how do we know this? So it quotes a verse. And when it talks about the tablets, the luchos that were originally created by, by Moshe, it says that the luchos were, the words of the luchos were charus al haluchos. Charus ches reish vav saf means engraved. So it's saying that the words of the, the Ten Commandments were engraved onto the stone tablets of the luchos. So the Gemara says, a certain way of reading the Torah. Altik richarus, do not read it engraved. Elocherus, by changing the vowelization, read it as freedom. And from here is the source, the truly free person is the one who toils in Torah. Okay, so it's cute. Charus, cherus, change the vowel, change the meaning from engraved to, to freedom. Uh, what, what, what's the connection? Is there any connection there? Is it just like a cute little reference? Like, what, what's the, what does the Torah mean? And what, is, what exactly does it mean that a truly free person is one who's engaged in Torah. Um, Torah, there's a lot of things, but why freedom? Why is that something which is um, synonymous with uh, being connected to the Torah? So the idea that Rabbi Sachs says, and I believe some Sofer as well, is as follows. Um, in Rabbi Sachs' terminology, there's two types of laws. There's what he calls ink on parchment, or ink on paper, and engraved. So he says most, or all man-made systems of law, so take American law, for example, um, it's basically, to greatly oversimplify it, it's basically a balance between law and liberty, right? And, you know, kind of one side wants more liberty and the other side wants more law. 
Um, and essentially, they're at odds with each other. In other words, if everybody did what they wanted to do, so there'd be chaos and anarchy. So therefore, we have to create laws that uh, give some sort of structure to society. Obviously, the more laws you make, the less freedom there is. The more freedom people have, the more chaos there is. And you have to find the proper balance uh, between law and liberty, uh, which, of course, means that you can't really be truly free. Uh, because if everybody did what they wanted to do, then there'd be chaos and anarchy. And therefore, you know, the question is exactly what sort of a balance do you strike between law and liberty? But essentially, law and liberty are at odds with each other. This, says Rabbi Sachs, is what we call an ink on parchment society, or ink on parchment system of law. What does that mean? It assumes that the people that we're dealing with want to do whatever they want to do. I want to speed. I want to get to where I want to go as fast as possible. So does everybody else on the road, right? If we didn't have traffic lights and speed limits, then everybody would try to go as fast as they possibly can to get to their destination, and then everybody would end up colliding with each other. So therefore, we superimpose laws against the will of the people. In other words, the will of the people is essentially to do whatever they want to do, which is at odds with each other. And the laws, now everybody recognizes a need for laws and people willfully follow them, but the laws don't change the will of the people. They are superimposed on top of the will of the people. So you have the will of the people, that's the parchment, that's the paper, and then you write on top of that uh, with ink and you, you pour ink on top of it. How much ink, how few ink. But at the end of the day, the laws are at odds with liberty because the laws are superimposed over the will of the people. This is a, uh, essentially every man-made system of law uh, functions this way. There is another way, however. And the other way is the following. And I'll give the following analogy. You know, if you wanna make sure that bikes aren't stolen in a neighborhood, right? So you can go to a neighborhood which is not necessarily such a safe neighborhood. You can get a bunch of locks and keys and, and lock up all the bikes and therefore they won't get stolen. Now, of course, that it's not very liberating for the bikes. Um, alternatively, you can go to Yeshiva Lane in Baltimore. Yeshiva Lane is uh, Yeshiva near Israel in Baltimore. They have their own little enclave there and the people who live there are the staff of the yeshiva. Um, you drive in there, there are bikes all over the place, lying every which way, wherever you want. Very free and liberated are the bikes. Uh, the houses probably are very free and liberated. I don't know how many people have keys to their front doors. I don't think those front doors ever get locked. Yet, there's complete lawfulness. Nobody steals. Nobody steals anybody else's bikes. Why? So the answer is, there's another system of law, which is called engraved. Engraved system of law. In an engraved system of law, the goal isn't to superimpose the will of the law over the will of the people. Rather, it's to change the will of the people so that they don't violate the law, right? So if you can educate and educate and educate the people until the point where they don't want to do anything wrong, then you will have a population which is 100% liberty and 100% law because the will of the people and what they want to do is consistent with the law. And therefore, liberty and law are not at odds with each other. A truly free society is only possible in a society where law and liberty coincide. They're not at odds with each other. Then you can truly say people are doing whatever they want, yet there's still lawfulness because everybody is voluntarily buying into a system of law because they've been educated that way. Of course, the difference in these two systems that one, one's primary tools are you know, uh, a police force and security 
and legal systems, etc. And the other one, its primary tools are educators and teachers um, and, and guides and mentors. Um, and if you look at kind of the Jewish history and, and the Jews, what our system has always been, it's always been very heavy on education, uh, not so heavy on legislation, not so heavy on, on um, you know, enforcement, law enforcement, but it's been very heavy on education because the Torah ultimately is written up. So let's getting back to the original idea. The Torah says the words of the Ten Commandments were charus al-haluchas, were engraved in the luchas. The word charus means engraved and says the Gemara, don't read it charus, don't read it engraved, rather read it charus, freedom. It's the engraving, the nature of engraving the, the laws into the hearts of a person, which is what gives it its true freedom. The Bible says, write them on the tablets of your heart, more so than writing, engrave them in the tablets of your heart. Like the Torah says, if you engrave them in the tablets of your heart, you're not just superimposing the Torah's will above and against your own but you're actually adopting the Torah's ideals as your own ideals. Uh, this is what I want to do. I don't want to take your advice, not because I'm afraid I'm going to get caught, but because it's the wrong thing to do, and I don't want to be, I don't want to do the wrong thing. It's actually very interesting. Uh, this is an aside to an aside, but it's, it's, it's an interesting one. The role of the, the, the best in, based in uh, the Jewish court, um, there are courts, and there's capital punishment in the Torah as well, um, yet there's a very... Interesting oddity when it comes to the, the role of the courts. It's very, very easy to get away with murder in a best-in system. It's as easy as buying a pair of earplugs. Because the halacha is that bezin cannot kill anybody until the person is warned, <clears throat> hears the warning, accepts the warning, and does it anyways. I mean, somebody has to be sitting there saying, if you kill this person, you will be liable to the death penalty. And the guy says, I know, and I'm going to do it anyways then the court could potentially kill him. In the absence of that, you can't kill him. It's a halacha. Okay? Which begs the question, so then what's the point of the death penalty? Right? I mean, typically we understand the death penalty to be a deterrent. Right? What sort of deterrent is it if you go out and buy a pair of earplugs or simply pretend you didn't hear? And then Besson can't kill you anymore. What's, so, so what's the point of that? What kind of deterrent? It's not really much of a deterrent, right? <laughs> so the answer is, based on what we're, under, what we're explaining now, is that the Torah is written for people who want to follow it. The Torah is not written for people who don't want to follow it. If a person doesn't want to follow the Torah, okay, I mean, you know, that's what it is. The Torah is for people who want to follow it. And the reason why there are capital punishments is not because it'll be a deterrent necessarily, but it's because... We want the guy to be warned as to the severity of the crime he's about to commit and hopefully not commit the crime. The goal isn't the threat of the penalty is what's going to stop you. It's the weight of the potential penalty and giving you the idea of the severity of the crime, which is the deterrent. It's not the actual carrying out of the crime, which will, which will be the deterrent. In other words, what's supposed to happen is we have people who ostensibly want to follow the Torah. And then someone comes to them and says, do you know that for desecrating Shabbos, you're liable to the death penalty? And the person will say, I didn't realize it was so terrible. I'm not going to do it. As opposed to, I'm not going to do it because I'm afraid I'm going to get killed. That's not the system that the Torah Torah is set up to to be. So it's a very different sort of system. It's a a system of charos, system of education, uh, more so a system of of, uh, enforcement. 
Um, you don't find law enforcement being, uh, you know, there's a law. You have to have judges on every corner in every city. And what's the point of that? Judges. And the answer is because when you have people that represent the law all around, it reminds people of the things they don't want to do. It wakes them up. It keeps them from doing things they deep down don't want to do. That's, that's the Torah system. For a society that doesn't want to follow the Torah, there's not much the Torah has to say to that. You don't want to follow the Torah, don't follow the Torah. You know, um, that's every person has free will. To, I mean, Hashem will take care of them after 120. <laughs> but but the, the Torah itself doesn't contain a system for those who willfully don't want to follow it. You know, that's up to the individual to decide they want to follow it. But for those who want to follow the Torah, for a society that wants to follow the Torah, um, there are mechanisms in place to remind people, to advise people, to keep the laws of the Torah in front of them at all times so that they're, they're, they're made constantly aware of it. So they don't end up doing the things that deep down they don't really want to do in the first place. Okay. Very different system. But that's Aluach Libecha, write them in the tablets of your heart. Okay. Um, Pasuk Dalit. Umitzah chen v'seichel tov be'enei elokim v'yadam. So this is a very interesting, the, 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 the grammar here. Umitzah chen. So on the surface, it's, it sounds like as a result, and as a person engages in Torah and wisdom, they will find favor and make good sense in the eyes of God and man. But the way it's worded here, umitzachin sounds like a commandment. And find favor and, and, and good, good sense in the eyes of God and man. So in fact, it is both. In other words, the Torah is telling us, the Mishle is telling us, number one, if a person does follow Chachma, does follow the Torah, they will inevitably find favor and will make good sense in the eyes of God and man. But more so, there's a commandment here. And the Gemara's command, the, Torah, the Pasuk is commanding us and telling us, you should find favor in the eyes of God and man. In other words, sometimes people in their, in their desire to serve God end up doing things that are, uh, don't find favor in the eyes of man. Um, and that's something which the Torah, the Mishle is, is, is exhorting us that we have to not only do things that find favor in the eyes of God, but also find favor in the eyes of man. As an example, some of the commentaries over here say there are certain laws. For example, the Gemara says that a, a, a charity collector cannot wear a garment with pockets. Like a public charity collector. I don't know, we don't do this today. I'm not sure why not. I mean, I have pockets on my clothes and I collect money for the coal. But... Um, the Gemara says that a person who's collecting charity should not have pockets in his garments. And the reason is because no one should suspect that maybe he's pocketing some of the money. Um, even if he's in fact not pocketing the money, but a person should go out of their way to be above any sense of suspicion. Um, and this is something that we're, we're commanded to do. In other words, a person should uh, not just, even if they're doing nothing wrong, they're, they're acting according to the letter of the law, but a person has to also make sure that they don't do anything which seems to be uh, you know, somehow wrong. Um, and that's, that's definitely a value. So again, it's, it's, it's a reality that a person will find favor in the eyes of God and man, but also that a person um, uh, should, it's a commandment, a person should seek that. Um, the the, the Mishnah in Perkei says that what, what's a good path that a person should choose? The Mishnah says a path that's tiferes oseha, that's a, a splendor, uh, towards the one who, who pursues this path, and it's tiferes lo min ha'adam, and one that provides a splendor to him from people. Um, in other words, if a person's going down the right path, 
they should be a shining example to others. People should look at that and say, wow, that's a noble person. That's a noble way of life. That's a noble thing the person's doing. And if it's not, if a person's not inspiring that sort of reaction, then it's an indication that maybe there's something wrong with his approach, something wrong with his behavior. Um, and, and we find this, and a lot of times people are, are you know, their interactions with, with the world around us, uh, you know, people in a, in a work setting, etc. You know, they're hesitant to be different. They're hesitant to, to kind of be out there. And uh, time and time again, you find that if people are respectful and, 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 and just menschlich, um, then people respect them. And, and if they stick, stick true to their, their beliefs, their convictions, people respect them. If, however, a person is not a mensch and, and doesn't treat people right, then you try to, you know, throw your religion around. Uh, that's going to give a black eye to, to anybody in the religion. So we have, we have a, obviously, a responsibility to find favor in the eyes of Hashem, but also in the eyes of men. Okay. Pasuk hey, verse 5. Betach el Hashem b'chol libecha ve'el binasacha al tisha'im. Okay, now this is a, this is a fascinating verse to find its way into a Sefer all about Chachma. Um, you would think that if we're writing a book about Chachma, attaining Chachma, attaining understanding, you know, a Torah-based understanding, etc., that uh, the bottom line is that, okay, so now that you've attained this level of understanding, so let the understanding guide you as far as how you live your life and make decisions. Yet, says Shlomo HaMelech, trust in Hashem with all your heart and do not rely upon your own understanding. So even after all the Chachma that we've achieved and attained, um, trust Hashem. Don't trust yourself too much. Um, you know, we say this many times that you know, praiseworthy is the person who places his faith in Hashem and, and, and not in people. He's saying not even in your own understanding. It's a certain sense of humility that a person has. Um, so, so how should a person properly weigh you know, his own understanding versus Hashem's? So, you know, obviously every circumstance is different and you got to ask questions about it. Uh, you know, I, for one, um, you know, you try to understand things the best of your ability. Try to understand circumstances the best of your ability, but also be open to the fact that if a possibility is in front of you, if an opportunity is in front of you, um, you know, maybe Hashem's way of putting something in front of you and go with it. Uh, it, it may not be, you know, don't get in Hashem's way, as we've said before. Um, don't be too smart with yourself. Don't think, you know, I've got my whole life planned out. I've got my whole plan. I know exactly what I have to do. Um, it's okay to be smart, but, but ultimately rely on Hashem. I've found this, you know, I found this dichotomy. You know, I talk to a lot of different people, learn a lot of different people. I have a little bit of a beef with business school. Good business school. A lot, of, a, lot, a lot of smart stuff is in business school. A lot, of, a lot of smart books are written. You know, a lot of stuff being written. You know, all sorts of, of you know, good methodology, how to build a company, etc. And it's all very logical and makes a lot of sense. So what's the problem? The problem is, is that if you actually went out and like polled, you know, people who actually tried to implement this stuff. You know, I wonder how many people who have been successful in business is directly because they follow these methods or because they, quote unquote, got lucky. They timed the market right. 
they happened to discover something that everybody wanted, you know? And how many people actually followed these methods to a T and didn't find that success, right? Now, at the end of the day, we are in control of what we can control on the one hand, but on the other hand, there's a lot more that's beyond our control. So the notion of using your own chachma as a rule of thumb should be used to the extent that it's gonna guide your decisions and the things that you do. But ultimately, if you're successful, it's not because you're brilliant, it's not because I'm so smart, I knew what to do. It's because Hashem wanted me to be successful. Um, so is it good to have wisdom? Yes, as far as deciding what our effort is, we have to do a smart effort. We have to put in a smart effort and a calculated effort. But to then say, because of my effort, that's why I'm gonna be successful. That's the wrong approach. Not only this, the Gemara says a person shouldn't even have that attitude about davening, about tefillah. A person's attitude should not be, I'll be saved in the merit of my tefillahs. Now, what do you mean? Isn't that why we daven? Yeah, of course that's why we daven. Before you daven, a person should sit there and daven to Hashem and say, Hashem, please save me. After a person finishes davening, they shouldn't walk away and say, oh, the merit of my tefillahs are going to save me. No, if Hashem wants to save me, He will, and if not, not. In other words, at the end of the day, there's a, there's a famous line from Yisrael Salanter, and, it, and it, 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 it plays so much better in Yiddish than in English, but his line was, Medaftan nisht uftan. Tan means to do, uftan means to accomplish. In other words, the outcome. Yisrael Salanter was saying, we need to do we don't need to accomplish. That's not up to us. The outcomes aren't up to us. So don't worry so much about the outcomes. Our job isn't the outcomes. Our job is to do. Obviously, want to, there's a notion in the world that it's all about accomplishment, accomplishment, accomplishment. The Torah perspective is whether our actions have the desired result aren't really up to us. The only thing we control is are we doing? So some people do, and they have the result. Some people do, they don't have the result. Okay, that's how Hashem wanted it, you know. But, but our job is to do, not to control the outcome. Um, so this is a very important thing. But Hashem trust in Hashem with all your heart. Do not rely on your own understanding, your own wisdom. It doesn't mean don't have wisdom. We need wisdom. We need wisdom to make decisions, to decide what to do. But uh, don't rely on it. Okay. Um, if I may, I want to want to uh, just share an idea that 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 really struck me over Hanukkah. This idea of of Chachman wisdom. So what time do we have over here? Um, so when we think about Yavon, we think about the Greeks. You know, much of Western the Western world is is based on the Greeks. Uh, many of the words that we know and love that kind of govern our entire worldview, like democracy, economy, things like that, come from Greek. Um, lots of stuff, you know, system of government, senate, and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, I said I was wrong, but a lot of stuff comes in Rome came from the Greeks. But um, yet the Gemara says, Choshech zu Yavon, that Yavon was darkness. I mean, if anything, they were enlightened. Why are they darkness? You know, um, there's a lot of that. A lot of what the Greeks brought to the world that 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 uh, is is all the wisdom of the world today. 
So I want to share an idea that I, that I heard, and it's a little bit of a deep idea, but it's, 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 it's a very powerful idea. The Gemara says the following. The Gemara says, Harogel Bener, if somebody's uh, consistent with candles, he will have children that are scholars and, and good people. What does Ner mean? Ner means a candle. So it's consistent with candles. What does that mean? So the Gemara says it's referring to two mitzvahs that we do with a candle. Ner is of Shabbos, the candles of Shabbos, and the candles of the menorah. So Rashi says. So a person is consistent with the candles of Shabbos, Shabbos candles, and consistent with the candles of the menorah, and he'll have good children. Okay? And what... Yes, they're both candles. What, what is the Gemara trying to tell us? So, like this. When it comes to uh, light in this world, we're talking about art, candles bring out light, um, there's really two areas of light. These are represented by the light that was created on the first day of creation, uh, and then the fourth day of creation, Hashem created luminaries, the sun, the moon, the stars, called Meoros. So we have R, light created on the first day, and then we have luminaries created on the fourth day of creation. If the light was created on day one, then obviously we're not referring to sunlight or moonlight. We're referring to something other than sunlight and moonlight. And the Gemara says it's referring to a divine light that's going to be you know, hidden for the righteous in the future. What's going on over here? So when we talk about enlightenment, uh, window into some sort of understanding there's two distinct realms of that one is the realm of this world what enlightens our world what we mean by that is anything that we consider to be something which leads to a better world so advice on marriages advice on families advice on interpersonal relationships any any sort of advice that pertains to make this world a better place that's one entire area of light shine a light onto the world there's a, that's the light of the fourth day of creation. The lights that shine onto this world. Brighten this world, make it a better place. There's an entirely different uh, area of light, which is the light that's beyond this world, which is the divine, which is Hashem, which is understanding divinity, which is also a source of light, metaphorically speaking, completely divorced and removed from the light that we talk about in this world, right? Now, the first half of human history, the era of the prophets, up until right before the era of, of the Greeks and the Hanukkah story, the world was obsessed with divine light and paid very little attention to the light that lit up, lit up this world. The world of paganism. So we look at a world of paganism as backwards people, as people that were just, you know, uncultured and just backwards and... and, and um, you know, with very little redeeming quality, so to speak, the way we look at them from our perspective. Let's try to change the paradigm a little bit. If these were people that had a keen sense of the divine, a keen sense of something beyond this world, so much so that they ignore this world, right? So the gods want me to sacrifice my kid? Okay, right? Because I don't really care what happens here. Yes, it's a horrible, cruel, and ugly thing to do in this world, right? But if that's what the gods want, okay, right? Because what I care about is the divine. We communicated, Hashem communicated to us through nevuah, through prophecy, 
It was a revelation. It was, it was something beyond this world. The world was awash in this light of, of not the world, but people were obsessed with this godly, ethereal light and completely ignored and left, left the physical earth in, in a dark place. So the Torah gave us the mitzvah of Shabbos candles. Shabbos candles, what's the purpose of Shabbos candles? The purpose of Shabbos candles, the main purpose, the Gemara says, is shalom bias. What does shalom bias mean? Have peace in the home. What do Shabbos candles do with peace in the home? In a very, very practical way. If you can't see, it's not going to be a pleasant place to be. So light candles, enlighten your home, so your home is a pleasant place to be. And metaphorically, what the mitzvah of Shabbos candles was saying is illuminate the dark part of the world. The brilliant part of the world was the divinity. The dark part of the world was what happens in the home between husband and wife and families. Says the Torah, take that dark part of, of the world. And again, in the world we're talking about, you know, before what we call the enlightenment. And put candles there. Put candles there that are going to help you walk and help you see and use those candles in order to brighten your physical existence. That's the Shabbos candle represents. Prophecy ended. There was a massive shift in the world. All of the pagan ideals went away. So we tend to look at that as we woke up, we saw the light. We traded one light for another light. Until now, the world was obsessed with the divine light. Now the world completely ignores the divine light. Anything beyond this world is, is uh, off limits. And all that matters is you know, science and psychology and, 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 and mathematics and all the wisdom that makes this world a better place. Is that a better approach than was before? Fundamentally, I don't know. You know, from our perspective it is because our perspective is very this world centric. So from a this world centric perspective, well, then you got to be enlightened. You're enlightened if you, you know, going from the dark ages to the enlightened period, right? Because they were dark in the dark about this world. Now we're enlightened about this world. Yeah, but they were enlightened about what's beyond this world. <laughs> and we're completely in the dark on that. Okay, there's a trade-off. Um, so after Yavan came into the world, yes, they represented a enlightenment in, in the physical sense in this world, but they represented a darkness as far as the other light is concerned, as far as the light that goes beyond. Um, and, and what happened, even though they did have gods, what happened is the gods became subservient to men um, in the era of the Greeks. And it was really all about man was the epitome of existence. And the gods were... You know, maybe forces that men can manipulate and do their bidding, but, but they definitely saw man as the pinnacle of existence. You know, much the same way there are animals out there that are stronger physically than human beings. But nobody says that, you know, the, the animals rule the earth. And, and in Greek mythology, the gods had all sorts of human, you know, frailties, and, and human beings would manipulate the gods frequently. And, 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 and the notion of the divine light was completely squashed. And what we were left with was a, was a, a light in this world. So to that... The Chacham came along and gave us a mitzvah of Neris of Hanukkah, Hanukkah candles. Take the dark part of your world and enlighten it with candles. Whereas the Shabbos candles are meant to be used and functional, enlighten your physical world and existence and give you a place to see, make a beautiful a place in the home. The Hanukkah candles, we're told, we're not allowed to use them at all. And they're just there to look at, right? Well, what's the purpose of that? 
right? What's the purpose of, of having candles that you can't use, right? The answer is because we're not trying to enlighten our physical environment. That's the Shabbos candles. What we're trying to do with the Hanukkah candles is to shine a light onto the dark part of the post-prophetic uh, world and, and take candles which are just there to look at and ponder and think, what is there beyond? What, is, what sort of light exists beyond my physical existence? That's the, the Hanukkah candle. So the, the Chachma, the wisdom that we live in our world is really all part of that, that lower realm. Um, the enlightenment of the lower world. But there's something beyond that, which is really beyond our chachma, even. It's beyond our own, our intellect, uh, that a person can tap into. I was speaking to somebody recently. Um, you know, somebody's undergoing, you know, some, some dif- difficulties uh, medically. And it's a person, very, very smart person, cerebral person, you know, would, would learn a lot of Torah. And you know, due to their medical condition, their cognitive abilities are somewhat diminished. Um, and they're aware of it. And, you know, it's not, you know, completely debilitating to where they can't function, but, but it, it, it does impair their ability to, to, to learn the way they were before. And I was talking to this person, and, um, you know, this person was feeling bad, you know, that, that they kind of lost, you know, that sense of, of, of things. And I, and I pointed out to him, I said, it may be true that, that you know, cognitively your ability to, you know, analytically and think and, and study the way they used to uh, may be impaired. Uh, but there's another light in this world, and that's the light of the divine, the spiritual light. And I said to him, I said, there's no question that you're more connected to Hashem, to holiness, uh, you know, to, to things that are really spiritual now than you were before. So maybe one light has been somewhat diminished, but another light has been, has been you know, completely... Um, you, you see another light much more now. And, and, and appreciating that. We live in a world which only seems to value you know, the physical light. And, and appreciating that, no, there's another light out there uh, that we can achieve, that we can attain. So this idea, this passage, trust Hashem, don't rely on your own brilliance, your own wisdom. Yes, there is a world of wisdom. There's a world of using the human faculties to analyze things, understand them, you know, to, 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 to create the epitome of a, of a human being in this in this world but there's a, there's a whole nother realm beyond that which we can get a taste of get a sense of it doesn't filter through our brains it doesn't filter through our intellect um, but it's a sense of holiness a sense of, of divinity that that uh, we can definitely achieve and I'm sure I mentioned this before but um, the Kuzari um, maybe we did mention this but uh, Kuzari is, is a wonderful work. He's, he's talking about different uh, approaches to life, and he talks to a philosopher, and the philosopher basically lays out, which essentially is you know Aristotle's uh, you know model of, of of Earth, which is you know uh, yeah, there's a God, but but ultimately it's all about you know being a rational, virtuous human being, and and that's the epitome of whatever thing, whatever whatever there is, and and uh, the Kuzari makes the point. He says if that were true, that the epitome of human being is just to be a rational, virtuous person. So why is there a difference between the smartest people and the holiest people? Why are those two different categories? Right? We all know there's something called a holy person. And we revere them for their holiness. And it's not necessarily because they're the smartest. If all there was to man was being smart and rational and virtuous, in in, in the Aristotelian sense... 
So then where does holiness come from? Right? And you can think, we all think to ourselves, think of someone who we consider to be smart, you know, take advice from them, they're very smart. Does that mean they're holy? Not necessarily. So where does holiness come from? Right? It's a whole different realm. It's a completely different realm, which is not directly related to being smart. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a, it uses different faculties. Uh, ones that are not not from this world. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's do one more possible. This is a famous one. Verse six. Famous verse. Behold do'ehu. With all of your ways know him, meaning Hashem. Vehu yasher and he will straighten out your paths. He will smooth out your paths. In all of your ways, know him. Okay, there's a lot of different ways to understand this, to interpret this. Um, all of your ways, know him. So one, one way that a lot of the commentators speak out is that everything you do should be Hashem-centric. You know, there are people that, that, that kind of bifurcate their lives. You know, there's my religious life, there's my spiritual life, there's my family life. There's my mundane life. There's my practical life. You know, there's my... Everything should be singularly focused on Hashem. A person eats, a person sleeps. We all need to do those things. But do them with an eye towards Hashem. I'm doing this. It's all, it's all one goal. And I have a friend who once told me, he says, every year I sit down and I write down, I say, you know, here are my personal goals. Here are my professional goals. Here are my spiritual goals. You know, so I told him, I said... It's very noble that you do that and set your goals. I said, but I would just change it all. I would just say, here are my goals. They're all spiritual. Some of those take place in the, in the personal realm. Some of those take place in the professional realm. But there really should be nothing in a person's life which is disjointed or disconnected um, uh, from the, the common source. And this, this Pasuk seems to be the converse of a Pasuk in Kohelas. Pasuk in Kohelas, Kohelas says... Elokim asa es ha'adam yashar. Hashem made a person straight. Vehem vikshu cheshvanos rabim. And they seek many different calculations and schemes. In other words, Hashem made this world a very straightforward place. You know, everything goes towards the same goal, the same end. What happens? We, we complicate things. We have different goals. We have different objectives. We have different agendas. I'll end with a cute little story. Uh, Rabbi Emanuel Feldman writes about this in his book, Tales Out of Shul. Um... He says he was once a congregant of his who uh, came to him. He says he has a problem. You know, he wants to come to Shalom Yom Kippur, but uh, you know, he lives far away and he'd have to drive. So he says, what should I do? So Rebbe says, come to Shalom. So he's saying, are you telling me to drive? He says, no, don't drive. Are you telling me I, should, I, should, I shouldn't come to Shalom? He says, no, come to Shalom. He kept on having this conversation. Come to Shul and don't drive. It's very simple. You know, the, the Torah's instructions are simple. The fact that you can't figure out a way how to do both of those things is your problem, not Hashem's. <laughs> right? You decided to, to arrange your life in such a way that, that doesn't allow for those two things to coexist. You know, Hashem didn't do that. That was you. You know, Hashem's, Hashem's very simple. Come to Shul and don't drive. It's not complicated. Yeah, but you live somewhere... Uh, I shouldn't have ask you to do that. You know, that's, that's, that's your problem. You, you complicated matters. So, so the Buzz and Gala says, 
Hashem made people straight. We complicate things by seeking all different goals. This Pasuk is the exact opposite. If all of your ways are directed towards Hashem, then you'll find that all of your paths are just one path. How simple would life be if we only had one path we had to walk down? The reason why we feel like we have to go a whole bunch of different places is because we actually have many different goals. If we had one goal, we'd have one path to walk down. We wouldn't have so many different places we have to go. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.